Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Liebe. I'm pleased to bring to you the fifth Aliyah, the fifth section of the Sidra of Genesis. We now come to Lemach's story. He who is the seventh generation from Adam and whose son Tuval Cain is the seventh generation from his namesake Cain. The punishment of Cain is finally coming to a head as God promised it would after Shivatayim, which on one hand may have meant it's sevenfold punishment, but probably more likely meant after seven generations. Interestingly, the punishment is not mentioned explicitly in the text, and therefore rabbinic literature called Agadah, meaning stories or legends, fills in a lot of the action, Cain's death, etc., and actually also finish, fills in the motives and the details about the relationship between all of these characters. Now, there are three approaches to understanding rabbinic Agadah. On one hand, you could assume that all the stories are literally true, and that the rabbis had some oral tradition of what occurred, tradition that had been transferred, uh, that can tr- be traced back all the way uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai, and was passed generation to generation until the rabbis wrote it down as Agadah. Another approach, a sort of a diametrically opposed approach, is that these stories are pure fantasy. They're a way of filling in holes left by a tersely written Torah, which are at best vehicles for moral messages, um, like a rabbi's Sabbath sermon, and at worst are just um, are just pure um, fancy. The third possibility, the one I ascribe to, goes as follows. Midrashim are almost never to be taken literally, but they are almost never wrong in their understanding of the biblical text. They bring into relief by inventing stories, if you will, they bring into relief the actual context which can be read between the line of the text itself if you know how to read between the lines carefully. They faithfully amplify the message that the Torah itself is trying to get across. But where the Torah does so with subtlety, relying on the least possible amount of words, the rabbis knowing that most people are not very good close readers of the text and are therefore likely to miss the message and the main messages of the story, they add in many more words and they put in background to make sure that we don't miss the central point. So the Midrashim are not literal, but they are true. I often give the example of the uh, Aesop's fable where the little mouse pulls the thorn from the uh, pad, the foot of the lion. Now, nobody nobody expects the story to be literal, but the story is without question true, and people, or the message is true, and people recognize that the message is true. For instance, let's discuss how the rabbis deal with the very first verse here. Lemach took for himself two wives. The first was named Ada and the second named Tzila. The rabbis add the Agada that Ada was the first wife taken for childbearing. And the second, Tzila, was the trophy wife, usually kept for enjoyment and because of her beauty and because of the sex that she provided. And in fact, they say it wasn't just this case, but that was the norm for these people. This is not only highlighting... Uh, whether the story is actually true is not important, but what it does is highlights the self-serving attitude of Lemach, which is actually hinted at in the text, in the one word lo. It says, Vayikach lo Lemach, and Lemach took for himself. It could have just said, Vayikach Lemach Shteinashim. When it uses the word lo, it means for his own purpose, for his own use. 
And therefore, by highlighting this, the way to highlight this, this negative aspect of Lemach himself, um, a story, if you will, is created in order to make sure we don't miss that point, which we're very likely to to miss. It also, the rabbinic story also explains that since Tila was taken for such negative reasons, it also would explain why uh, Ada's children had constructive and peaceful jobs, as we will see, but Tzila's child as the child of a trophy wife, as the child of a woman who was known just there for her beauty and for the fact that she could give pleasure, Selah's child was a maker of weaponry. The rabbis go on to say that both Ada and Selah will divorce themselves sexually from Lemach after he kills, well, we'll get to that when we get to that, we'll see who he kills. Now, this rabbinic legend, which has Lemach begging his wives to have sex with him again, the purpose is not salacious, because it's not to be read literally where they're turning him away, and he's on his knees begging for them, that's that's not to be understood literally. But the rabbis are making the very accurate point, and in fact they're trying to make a point that we might miss, which is a central point in the Torah. Cain's lineage is about to die out, and we might miss it, but that's the central point. The Torah is all about what happens to people when they start lineages, are they successful or not successful, who will populate the world, who will control the world. Lemach is the last of his line, or I should say Lemach's family is the last of his line, before they disappear completely from the Torah and therefore from the world. So by the rabbis, quote-unquote, making up the story about how a Lemach's wives refuse to have sex with him, and he begs them to come back, and they refuse to come back, that's a fanciful story, but the essential message is absolutely true. What the Torah is describing to us here is a family and a lineage that is going to die out and disappear from the world forever. The the rabbis, what they understand is the subtleties of the original text, and, and therefore they add narrative, which need not be literal. I know I'm repeating this, but it's an important idea, but they add narrative, which they never meant to be taken as literal, but they feel will highlight the central points and the subtle points of the text that a non-close reader will miss. Of course, it's possible the rabbis are also adding in moral messages and about multiple wives and how it's inappropriate to take them and there are bad reasons to get married. Uh, of course, in the Torah, it makes that message itself. The Torah allows a man to marry two wives, but if you take a look at every single case in the Torah where two wives are taken, the results of those relationships and the events that flow from them are fractious at best and disastrous at worst. Ada gave birth to Yaval, who was the father, or perhaps the leading expert, as the Aramaic uh, translation Uncle says, the leading expert of those who dwelled in tents, dwelled in tents and tended cattle. Of course, Hevel was already tending flock, flock seven generations before, uh, but apparently what's different here is the word mikneh, which includes cows and oxen and can even mean horses and the like. And apparently that required the invention of setting up tents and corrals and the like, keeping the animals close, rather than what Hevel probably did was simply wandering after the animals, uh, the, the sheep and the goats, wherever they went. And his brother's name was Yuval, and was the father, or again, probably means the leading expert of all those who took up the lyre and the pipes, meaning he was a musician and a maker of musical instruments. As we will see, all of Lemach's three kids' names are similar. We have Yaval, we have Yuval, and finally we have Vitsila Gamhi Yalda et Tuval Kayan. 
And Sila, she too gave birth to Tuval Kayin, a sharpener or a forger of bronze and iron implements, which of course range from plowshears to swords, any metals that need sharp, but the implication is weapons of well, I won't say mass destruction, but at that time mass destruction. And the sister of Tuval Kayin was Naama. Tuval Kayan bears not only the name of that common name, Yaval, Yuval, and Tuval, but he also bears the name of his great-grandfather to the seventh degree, Kayan. So we can assume there is a connection between them, even the Torah, even though the Torah doesn't state explicitly what it is, except by saying that in the seventh generation, uh, Kayan's fate would be sealed. The most obvious connection, of course, is that both dealt in death-dealing businesses, uh, Kayan, of course, was a murderer of his brother. Now, Tuval Kayan, we don't know that he murdered, but he certainly created implements of war, murder, destruction. Agadic literature will also attempt to strengthen the connection to which the text hints at in the next verse. But before I get there, Naama uh, is Lamach's fourth child, or at least the fourth one who is mentioned. Because as I said before, usually women are not mentioned when as part of a lineage unless they are significant in some way. Either they play a central role in the narrative to come or they are somehow famous in their own right. Um, also, and this is important, I mentioned, such as by the case of Hevel and by the case of Cain, names in the Torah are not so much what they were called, but what they were. It, 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 they are indicative of what the character is. Hevel was vapor that disappeared. Cain was named after the mother because she felt that she had created. She was part of the creation process. The word kone means a creator. In this vein, the great commentator Ramban says here about Naamah, Her deeds were beautiful and pleasant. Notice her name Naim means pleasant. And this is to highlight, says the Ramban, that she had a reputation in those generations, that is, she was famous because she was righteous and she gave birth to righteous people, and that is why the Torah mentions her. Now, the rabbis, the Ramban doesn't say this, but the but the rabbis in their Agadic literature tie Naamah to Noach most often as his wife, that Naamah married, that Noach married Naamah. This is what I call conservation of biblical characters. If a woman is mentioned in a lineage, she must have played some role in the story, or she was simply famous. And since we meet Noah's unnamed wife, um, who really doesn't do anything or say anything, but she does accompany her husband into the ark, and therefore we can assume that uh, Noah married somebody who was similar to him or supported to him in his righteousness, so the rabbis essentially created an agadah to tie together these loose ends. Now let's return to the story and get to the actual action. Vayomer lemach lenashav adda v'tzila shema'an koli nishei lemach azina imrati ki ish haragti lifitzi v'yeled l'chaburati ki shivatayim yukam kayin v'lemach shivim b'shiva. And lemach said to his wives, Adda and Sila, listen to my voice. O wives of Lemach, give ear to my words, because I killed a man with my striking, and I killed a boy with my blow. Indeed, the seven has been realized for Cain and for Lemach, seventy-seven. 
This is biblical poetry, and one of the main features of biblical poetry is repetition. So the fact that there's a duplication of Lemach's command that his wives pay heed to him, that's a natural part of the poetic form. And the fact that he mentions he killed, and then he killed, and that Cain was seven, and he was 77, all this is part of the duplicate uh, duplications that one has in poetic form. However, the rabbis beautifully leveraged Lemach's repetition that his wives listened to him to say that he tried and tried but couldn't get his wives to listen to him. Not the first time, so he tried a second time, and even that didn't work because, as I mentioned before, they stopped having sex with him after he killed whoever he kills, and he's trying to convince them to return to be his wives. After he kills whoever he kills, which we'll get into in a second, they apparently abandon him, and that means he knows that his lineage is at an end, and therefore he's desperately trying to woo them back. Now, of course, the lineage isn't actually at an end, because Yuval and Yaval are still alive. Ada's two children are still alive. But from the Torah's perspective, his line is dead. That's the message that the Torah is trying to get across. And therefore, they set up, the rabbis try to point that out by setting up, or emphasize it, by setting up um, uh, Lemach is desperately trying to restart his family. Uh, we have a second duplication afterwards, which is that he claims that he kills a man, an ish, and a boy, a yelled. Now, this actually does seem to indicate two different homicides and not just poetic uh, uh, duplication, because ish and yelled, it's hard to say that those are, are one and the same person. So, while the Torah never states who they are, the rabbis know that we have reached the seventh generation, from which matched God's promise regarding that Cain's fate would come due. And they also note the name connection between Cain and Tuval Cain. So they read between the lines and they tie the narrative together by identifying Lemach's uh, victims. Now, they create kind of a fantastical story, which I'll get to in a second, about an accidental murder and then an accidental other murder. But the essential issue is, the, the essential message of the Agadah is true, that Cain his own fate will be sealed by his own family and it'll be sealed because his family winds up representing and acting in the violent same violent way that is he gives to his lineage the violence and that violence which is inbred in his lineage comes back to kill him as well and that's the agadic point and that's the beautiful point that the torah makes subtly and that the rabbis state more obviously now, the Agada actually states that, that Lemach thought Cain was an animal. So, thinking he was an animal about to attack uh, Lemach and his son Tuval Cain, he asks Tuval Cain for his weapons that Tuval Cain creates, and he kills him from afar. He kills him with a, with a bow and arrow. Afterwards, having realized his mistake that he just killed his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he flails around in distress with his hands and accidentally kills Tuval Cain. Um, the rabbis say essentially that this song that he's singing to his wife is an attempt to convince them that the murder was accidental and therefore they shouldn't run away from him, they should rejoin him. But as the rabbis essentially are correctly pointing out, the lineage which began in corruption and death when Cain killed Havel ends up in the same corruption and long distance death and violence uh, which uh, winds up coming back to bite him and seal things up even if it takes seven generations, which it did. It's built an 
inbred and ingrained into the children, the way they're raised, and the way Lamach takes his wives and uses his wives and, and his children, or at least Tuval Kain, creates these uh, mechanisms of destruction. What we have here is a corrupt familial organism which eats itself up and, inevit- and, and, and it's unviable, and therefore it inevitably dies out. And therefore God goes back to the drawing board. Uh, and Adam knew his wife in the biblical sense, of course, and she gave birth to a son, and she called his name Shait, saying, because God has set up for me, or set for me, Shait is an Aramaic word meaning to place, to put, or to set, uh, because God has set for me another offspring in place of Hevel since Cain killed him. Note the difference, I think, in um, in Chava's attitude, in the woman's attitude when she's naming Shate. If you remember by Cain, she described herself an equal God, as an equal to God. We together created man. Here, it seems to me she is much more humble. She's learned her lesson. God has done it for me, not with me as a partner. I am a recipient of God's goodness, not a partner to him. I think it's a good sign, and it's a reason why the lineage is far better. Um, by the way, note here that the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order. It's called Ein Mukdam Mukhar Torah. The birth of the third son of Sheik does not happen after the entire Lemach story is finished. It's obviously happening parallel and simultaneous to it. Since the Torah uh, presents its narrative thematically, it wants to follow the full path of of the lineage of Cain and, and, and fully explore its corruptness and why it dies out, and then it sweeps us back in time to uh, the beginning of that lineage uh, to focus on the one that will uh, endure, to Shait's lineage. Well, the kam hu yulad ben vayikrash et shmo enosh az uchal likro b'shem Adonai. And to Shait as well, he had a son born to him, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the name of God began to be called on. Now, whenever we have the Hebrew words, the Hebrew letters, Chet and Lamed, conjugated into a verb, there are always all kinds of ambiguities. Here we have the word Huchal. And that's because there are a lot of similar forms which all look uh, alike. We have the roots Chet Lamed Lamed, Chet Vav Lamed, which means hollow, chet yud lamet, which means uh, uh, pangs, uh, chet lamet hey, uh, all kinds of different Hebrew forms which conjugate in, and look similar. Rashi follows a certain rabbinic approach which understands the word chal here as, from the word halal, to to lechilel in the PL, to profane, meaning that man started profaning and corrupting God's name by turning, instead of God, by turning to idol worship. However, most of the commentators, Eben Ezra, and most of the other commentators on the page, see the word as to begin, like the word lahatchil, which is how I translated it, meaning that mankind, for the first time, begins invoking God, meaning perhaps that they begin to formalize worship, make temples, and organize religion. Now, it's true, God spoke to man before, he spoke to Adam, he spoke to Kaya, but these were conversations initiated by God as part of his involvement in the development of mankind. Here, mankind apparently reaches out to God, and perhaps that's why Shait's son is called Enosh, which means 
which sort of means mankind, like the word anashim. Uh, perhaps what the Torah is saying, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that what the Torah might be saying is that when man organizes religion and starts to turn to God for assistance, that's when individual homo sapiens transform into a functional society worthy of being called enosh or anashim or mankind.